0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We are, we are doing, in a sense, a two-part series of sermons. The first was Friday night on... The reality of a thousand generations and what it looks like to be a father or a mother who, who knows the faithfulness of God spanning from now with our eyes fixed on eternity and going into eternity. And as I said Friday night, I think there's really good cause from Scripture to think that, that generations and fruitfulness continue in heaven, not the way we generate generations here on earth because it'll be not marriage but we're married to the we're married to the groom the great groom we're part of the bride there's going to be there's going to be fruit from our lives and so my great desire is that all of you have the joy have the privilege of of living so that your life and your witness and your testimony and and the seeds you plant go on and on and on and continue arcing through time into eternity when there is no time. And as as we do this, I want to say I'm, I'm preaching on this. This is not simply a sermon to, to parents, many of those who are going to have a thousand generations were great men and great women who were never married. I just read about Mary Slessor, this Scottish missionary to, to Nigeria who gave her life to rescue the twins. Twins were considered, in the late 1800s, were considered, uh, one of them was, was born of an evil spirit. That's why they were twins, and they didn't know which, so they put them in jars, exposed them, and leave them to die. And Mary Slessor, just twin after twin, saved she was single all her life, but she will have generations upon generations. So too with Apostle Paul. So too with some of you who are never going to be married. I am also speaking to mothers because you're a great part of this. I was reading this past week the story of, from Luke of Jesus' birth, of John the Baptist being foretold and then Jesus and I came across that moment when Mary having been told by God by the angel that she's going to be with child and then she conceives the child by the Holy Ghost and she goes and sees her relative Elizabeth who is at that point five or six months along in her pregnancy and the two women come together and it says at that point the Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth And the child within her leapt. And Elizabeth said, blessed are you among women. And Mary responds, Mary who at that time has God himself within her. She responds with the Magnificat. And I thought, has there ever been a greater occasion of divine glory and of human glory than the meeting of those two women? God in the one the Holy Spirit filling the other, the child within her leaping at the presence of God. Just awesome. And, and so I, I'm going to be challenging fathers, but I'm challenging mothers. Everything I say is true of you. I'm, I'm challenging single people. What I say to families is applicable to you in your life as you work, as you lead, as you expect. We take as our passage this morning a a passage out of Jeremiah, which has been preached on once before. It's the story of the Rechabites, this family that uh, was told by the sort of ancestor of the clan, who was the son of Rechab. It wasn't Rechab. They're called by the father of the guy who, who gave the command, who set the pattern, who's Whose expectations defined the family? And that guy was Jonadab or Jehonadab. It's spelled both ways in the Bible, um, and Jonadab was a was a, a man who told his family, "We are going to live in tents. We are not going to drink wine. We are not going to build houses. We are not going to be agrarian." We're, at least to the extent of being cultivators of the land. We will not plant seed, we will not plant vineyards, we will not do these things. Um, But we are going to thus be nomadic shepherds and his family obeyed for generation after generation. This passage has been preached on once before, many years ago, though it's still remembered by some of our young people because I asked who's preached on this, and they were able to tell me. I knew, but uh, they were able to tell me. I thought maybe someone else had, and no, um, no one else has, from what at least Audrey Arndt and a few others told me. But Mr. James preached on this years ago, and he talked about the wisdom of, of not drinking during that sermon. Do you remember that, Mr. James? You do? And that was why I was so surprised that you were pushing for alcohol last night. But, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wondered during that sermon if Mr. James was going to deliver a charge like Rechab or like Jonadab. He didn't, but he did talk about the usefulness of not drinking, which is something that, that saved my life, quitting drinking. Um, so I'm going to invite you to stand as we look at this passage, which I think is just a I mean, tremendously powerful passage on, in its instructions on how to raise children to a thousand generations how to raise a thousand generations. This is the practical one. Friday night was not. It was the theoretical. This is practical. Jeremiah 35, and when we're done, we're going to pray and ask God to be with us. tonight. I really want you to, when, when we pray for the, God's word, the Bible says, let men raise holy hands in prayer, and I want you to raise your hands with me. I really do. I want all of you to do it. All right. Uh, the word of the Lord, the word which came to Jeremiah from... Yahweh in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, remember I'm using this, um, this um, uh, legacy standard Bible, which is very much like the NASB, but there will be differences. Uh, the word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them into the house of Yahweh, into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habizaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of Yahweh, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the the man of God, which is beside the chamber of the officials, which is above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then uh, Then I put before the men of the house of the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. But they said, We will not drink wine. For Jonadab, son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine. You are your sons forever. You shall not build a house, and you shall not sow seed, and you shall not plant a vineyard or own one. But tents you shall inhabit all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. So we have listened to the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he commanded us, not to drink wine all our days. We, our wives, our sons or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to inhabit. And we do not have vineyard or field or seed. We have only inhabited tents and have listened and have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it happened that when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, come, let us come to Jerusalem before the military force of the Chaldeans, the, the, the Babylonians, before the military force of the Arameans, the conquering force that preceded the Babylonians, so we have inhabited Jerusalem. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive discipline by listening to my words, declares Yahweh. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded to his sons not to drink wine are established. So they do not drink wine to this day, for they have listened to their father's command. But I have spoken to you, rising up early and speaking, yet you have not listened to me. Also, I sent to you all my slaves, the prophets, rising up early and sending, saying, turn now every man from his evil way and make good your deeds and do not walk after other gods to serve them. Then you will inhabit the land which I've given to you and to your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab the son of Rechab, have established the command of their father, which he commanded them. But this people has not listened to me. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the harmful evil that I have spoken against them, because I spoke to them, but they did not listen. And I have called them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have listened to the command of Jonadab, your father kept all his commands and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not have a man cut off from standing before me always. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to attend your word with more than human power that you may bring from your power, your word to our hearts that we may receive it not as the word of men but with conviction because it is your word and it comes with your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, of course, the background of this passage is, is obvious from what we have looked at together, what we have read. The rebellious people of the southern nation of Judah, the people of Israel now, because northern Israel no longer exists, so you can call it Israel at this point. Failing to listen to God through his prophets time after time after time. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, so-called, because no prophet was more disdained, more paid lip service to but ignored, more threatened, more rejected, than Jeremiah other prophets may have been treated more evilly because we know that many of the prophets were killed at least physically treated worse than Jeremiah because he was not killed others were the life of Jeremiah seems at least to me as a pastor to be a life that's actually worse than death years and years decades of speaking for God without anyone ever listening and it seemed to me that I had a good 10 years of that at the beginning of my ministry. And it was, I mean, I, I can remember going to bed at night and thinking, is there anything else I could do? I know God called me. Is there anything else could, I could do? In the early years of my ministry, I thought I would never have committed suicide. I'd rather die than continue this way. It's just so awful to be preaching, to see no power, to see no results, to see nothing, nothing, nothing. It makes you wonder about God. It makes you wonder about yourself. It makes you, it's awful. And this is the life that Jeremiah led. Now there is a consolation and if there is a consolation, it's this, in such a life, it's the knowledge that, that you're a spokesman for a greater and that, and that God has said, look, it will not always be received well. Do not lose heart that the word is not received. And that ultimately, and this is what you had to do, what I had to do, I say, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting God, you yeah. And they thought they were rejecting me. They really did. And they said, no, we love God, David. We just don't like you. Um, you probably remember some of those <laughs> days, don't you, Miriam? but it really wasn't i mean i'm not claiming to be uh, likable i'm not claiming to be a great spokesman for god i'm not claiming anything but i did seek to preach god's word faithfully and and at some point you had to say well this is this is not against me this is against god and that is a consolation but it's it's not much and that's the life of jeremiah It's enough to keep you going, but boy, it's a painful life. And this guy, (laughs) if any pastor thinks he's had it hard, he needs to read the book of Jeremiah and stop complaining. Here we find God rebuking the Israelites through Jeremiah for their failure to listen to him as he's spoken to them through his spokesman, the prophet Jeremiah. And the message at this point comes, as God relatively often does, through his son, through his prophets, through he, it's through a very simple object lesson rather than through some vast statement of theology. You know, it's just an object lesson. The Rechabites, this is, they're a clan, and they have relatively recently taken up residence in Jerusalem due to the current national crisis and collapse. They've come to Jerusalem, which is the 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 sole kind of secure city that's still standing after the Aramans had swept through the nation and failed to capture Jerusalem, and failed to capture the nation, and with Sennacherib and Ashurbanipal going back and getting cast away under Hezekiah and other times. But then God says, several hundred years later, enough, enough, and He sends the Babylonians. So these twin, separated by Centuries, but twin scourges of marauding, invading armies coming through the land have forced this nomadic family to leave the desert and to go to a place with walls and some form of security so that they are not killed. When the armies are sweeping the land and you raise cattle, you're at risk because those armies live by sweeping up like a great, huge 100,000-man, 200,000-man vacuum cleaner, every living thing that will support the army. And so the Rechabites have come to Jerusalem. They've taken up residence in the capital for relief from these armies, but they have no intention of staying there once the armies return home once the countryside is safe it's their intention to return to their tents it's clear and so in this passage in this period in the life of jeremiah god says to him take this family bring them into the temple i want to make a point bring them into a particular room and it's amazing to me how particular it tells us where who it was and what room and in the temple but that's our God, he is a particular God. He knows you, he, you, know, you may not be the prime player in this but your name is in his book. And he says, take them there, seat them, put wine and cups before them and say to them, drink. It's interesting I think that he doesn't tell him to say to the Rechabites as they're seated in that room, the Lord God says drink. He just says drink now it comes with the weight of the prophet and the prophet speaks for God and so in our passage Jeremiah does it he brings the Rechabite men to the temple commands them to drink And despite the authority of the prophet and the obvious reverence for God of this family, the Rechabites object that the father of their clan, Jonadab, son of Rechab, had commanded them, saying, You shall not drink wine, you or your sons, forever. And you shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, and you shall not plant a vineyard or own one, but tents you shall inhabit all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. And so they've done it's kind of reminiscent of the commandment that honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. They've lived long. They've maintained an identity. They have followed God. They have been faithful. For 250 years, that's how long it's been since Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave this command to his family. For 250 years, they followed the command of Jonadab, their, their forefather, their They've lived as nomads in tents in the wilderness, not planting, nor becoming cultivators of the ground, not growing grapes, not planting vineyards, not drinking wine, living in tents with livestock, perpetually thus on the move in the wilderness, going wherever pasture can be found, moving with the seasons, following the green grass, going to higher elevations in the summer, going lower in the winter. A couple of years ago, Cheryl and I visited a Bedouin home in the area of Wadi Rum in Jordan, and this Bedouin family still lived in tents in the desert. They had baby lambs and goats, and those little lambs and goats wandered in and out of the tent as we sat there and had tea with the mother. There was a women's tent, there was a man's tent, there was a, and in the man's tent, there was a fire. The walls were pulled up, the, this, this fabric. Two of the walls were pulled up so that the fire could be in the exposed corner and she cooked there on um, tiny little pieces of wood over tiny little, because in the desert there's not much wood and so we were amazed by the smallness of the fires and the concentration of how they tried to keep the heat because they only put on two little knuckles of wood to get a, a pot to boil. As recently as 20 years ago, this, this young man who took us to his family's tent told us the, the grandfather, the grandfather who I believe was still alive but was out in the, in the desert with his flock, that grandfather would ride, he would take a train of camels from wherever their tent was in the wilderness to the nearest town with water where he would fill bladders made of animal skin put them back on the camels and ride back it would be a full day and I think it was once every week or once every two weeks a full day was spent traveling and getting water this was the life that was required of the children of Jonadab by their father in the cities there was running water on them. Hezekiah built reservoirs wells there was but you could walk down and find water for washing and for feeding right down the road but not in the desert but now they are living in jerusalem and in particular on this day they're sitting in the temple and they are commanded to drink wine by jeremiah they object and they quote hey this is what our dad said to us now they didn't know that man That man lived 250 years before them. None of them knew that man. How many of you know a grandfather of yours or a great-grandfather from 250 years ago? How many of you can say his name? How many of you can say whether he's a believer or not, whether he loved God? But they know who their (coughs) great-great-great-grandfather was, whatever, they know him. 250 years later, they know what he said, and they're still doing it. They say, well, hey, hey, you know, <laughs> don't know I don't know how much you mean it. You know, that's implicit in what they, you know, is if God tells us to, I guess we've got to do what God says. But man, we don't wanna do this thing. We really don't want to do it. We don't want to drink wine. We don't want to. And over the years, they've probably had other opportunities to drink wine, and they've turned them down. They said, no, we don't do this. That's not our family way. So God commends these men and this family, using their obedience to an earthly forefather as a stark counterpoint to the disobedience to their heavenly father of his people the sons of Rechab God says established the command of their father which he commanded them the man gave the command the children established it the man said this is what we do but that was a command it was established by the lives of the children who said ah this is what we do we were told God says You established the command of your father, which he commanded you. But this people has not listened to me. And I'm their God. The people of Israel will thus suffer all the evil that God has warned of because he spoke to them and they did not listen. And he called to them, but they did not answer. And he spoke to them and gave his good commands to them, but they did not obey. Yet... In the midst of this condemnation of the entire nation, God speaks to the the Rechabites through Jeremiah, and he says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, God, Jehovah, the Lord of armies. (laughs) Which is an interesting thing, because God doesn't always say, I am the God of hosts, of armies. But here when the threat is armies, God says, I'm the God of armies. I have armies, I have my armies to this family. I have my armies. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have listened to the command of Jonadab, your father, kept all his commands and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not have a man cut off from standing before me, Always, always, always. Always. Jonadab will not be cut off from having a man before me, always. A man of the line of Rechab standing before God, always, forever. The line of Rechab will thus endure to a thousand generations standing before God. And this is the way that the line of Rechab comes to have a very specific promise before God establishing their line before him. He will be their God. He will maintain loving kindness and mercy he will honor his covenant with this family to a thousand generations of their line. A thousand generations of the Rechabites will stand before God. From then until eternity and into eternity, standing before God. Never ever lacking a descendant who stands before God, never. 150 years after this date, this date is 250 years after the command was given by Jonadab. 150 years after this date, when when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, you know who's one of the builders? A son of Rechab! 400 years later, they're working in the temple. They've come to town to work on the house of God and on the city walls of the city of God. Today, there is a descendant of Rechab standing before God. Tomorrow, there will be one. We don't know who or where and how God has kept his faithfulness, but we know God is faithful to his word. all the days, forever, always. All the days of earth into eternity. The face of God will be towards this line forever. They will stand in his presence. Now, this is our great goal. Our dearest desire, the greatest hope we have as a church, that the families of this church, that the fruit of this church, that the lives that come to know the Lord in this church, that those who witness in this church and bear fruit in that way, and that, again, I say, the families of this church will be established to a thousand generations before God. To see the lines of our families become lines in God's eternal family. To see the families of men and mothers established now and forever. To see the work of God established through the families and lines of the people of this church for a thousand generations that you may know that you will always have, no matter if you don't even know, child even if you have not had a gleam in your eye of this child that you have a descendant standing before God and that God has looked with favor on you some of you in the midst of such a line some of you are beginning such a line now Rechab is in the midst of a line but he's also the progenitor of the line as well he's in the line of Abraham which was given such a promise he himself has this promise given to him. And so you can be an heir of such a line and the founder of such a line because it can become individual again with you. And so some of you are are the first in a line. Some of you are also in a line where God has done this. This is our desire. Scripture gives us... Three families that are specifically told they'll always have a a descendant before God. There are more, and I'll mention a couple more as well. Um, But specifically, besides Jonadab and the family of Rechab, David is told that he will have a son who sits on the throne of Israel. He will never lack a son. (laughs) There's no king in Jerusalem. There's no throne. And there's... Perhaps no descendant of David in in the city. We don't know. But that promise was incredibly and marvelously fulfilled when God sent, as a son of David, his own son, to become the king who reigns forever and ever. In the words of the Hallelujah Chorus, forever and ever and ever, David's son reigns. Uh, We we won't accuse God of, of failing David, will we? No, 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 no. <clears throat> we have the, the family of Phineas, son of son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. Family of Phineas is promised a covenant of peace. For Phineas and his descendants after him, a covenant of perpetual priesthood for the line of Phineas. You know, Phineas was right at the beginning at the Exodus and after centuries and centuries of, of the history of Israel and after the exile, we read that Ezra comes back from exile the priest Ezra comes back. He comes back from exile and he works to rebuild the temple. And who, what line is Ezra from? The line of Phineas. God said it. God was faithful. Hundreds and hundreds of years later. It's a thousand years. And Phineas has a priest building the temple of God, the second temple. That is the faithfulness of God. Phineas, David, Rechab, and of course you can include in the, those, though we don't necessarily think of them that way, those men who are promised. Uh, they're not given the verbal promise, but it's clear God has made this promise and that Noah will always have a son before the Lord because all of us have come from the righteous man, Noah. We're also told that Abraham was going to be a blessing to the nations and thus abraham has this promise and we could we could also include isaac and jacob in that because each of them was promised so we have phineas david rechab noah abraham isaac jacob each one is a father each one the head of a line that stretches a thousand generations before the lord what do we learn from these lives What do we learn? What is there that's practical for you and me, for our church, for our lives? First, we have to say that every one of the men who received this great privilege and this great promise from God, this promise that out of them would come a line, every one of them was a man who proved himself a man of zeal for God. There was a holy zeal for God in every one of these lines. You're probably familiar with the line of David and David's zeal for God. You know how he loved the Lord. You know how he danced before the Lord. You know how he threw himself into the worship of God. And that worship of God was so zealous that his wife, Michael, said, oh, you've made yourself a a spectacle today dancing before the Lord. I really wish that some of you who have never raised an arm in worship would be given the spirit of dancing. So that though you may not raise your arms as scripture commands, you're forced by the Holy Spirit to dance before the Lord because zeal, is real, zeal is observable, zeal is found most particularly in worship. How do you worship God? How do you demonstrate your zeal for God? Is it visible to your children, do they see a man of zeal for God? David's children never had to question whether their father was zealous for God oh no, oh no. That was the third rail in David's family. Don't touch the glory of God because the glory of God is David's number one concern. He'll go and fight Goliath to the glory of God. He'll do anything to the glory of God. And he's so zealous for God that when he's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and Uzzah, the Levite, touches the ark because it's falling, they have it on an ox cart, and uh, God strikes him dead. David thinks, God, I'm being zealous for you. I'm bringing it back. Why are you unhappy with us? And he's, he, the Bible tells us he's angry with God. He's unhappy with God out of his zeal. He expects things of God. He ex- well, he makes mistakes, and you'll make mistakes in your zeal. But don't let your mistakes keep you from zeal. Don't let the fact that people are going to laugh at you and that you're going to look like a... a a jackanapes at points keep you from being zealous for God. I look at certain families in our church and I think, you know, I don't think they have much going for them, except they have one thing: they have a zeal for God, and that one thing is everything. It's everything. You look at a family and you say, you know, they don't seem the most academically disciplined. They, their house isn't the neatest one in the neighborhood. They're this, they're that. You could go on. But why is it that their kids keep on turning out well? I'll tell you why. It's because there's a zeal in that home. There's a light that shines for God. And it forms the lives. Think about Abraham and his zeal for God. His relative, his nephew Lot is taken captive by a group of kings these kings have also taken the whole of Sodom captive including the king Abraham is zealous he says, okay God, I'm going after them they've taken your son, your child Lot, I'm going after them he raises his own army, he gets some allies he goes out, he captures he takes down the people who captured Lot and Sodom takes them down, wipes them out by his army, that's zeal but then as they're coming back, returning with the captives whom they've set free, the, the king of Sodom says, have whatever you want. Take whatever you want. You've, set, you've, you've released us. You've, you can have anything you want. Abraham says, I will have nothing from you. Nothing. I won't take a dime of your money. Because otherwise men would say that you had done these things. But it's God who has done these things. Zeal. Your kids will tell the zeal that you have for God by the things you don't spend money on. The ways you don't accumulate money. The ways you give money. The ways that you give up money. Zeal. Where is the zeal of your life expressed in your wallet? By your bank account think of Noah and the zeal of Noah we're going to build an ark boys we're going to build an ark and then we're going to populate the ark and for uh, just the very thought could he be anything other than a, a in the eyes of the people around him a megalomaniac you know he's the crazy man of the neighborhood who in his zeal is building an ark you know And everyone in the town is going, I don't know what that guy's good for. He's not good for much, but he sure has a big structure going up up there. And then he starts bringing the cattle in, and he's going, oh, man, that guy is crazy. That's what zeal looks like. It looks like insanity. It makes you look weird and crazy to other people. My dad used to say to to people who would ask us why we didn't have a TV set. We never had one growing up, and that'd be like not having a computer and the internet today, I don't know, and a TV set, you know, because that was everything back then. And he'd say, well, we just can't afford one. And and so on several occasions, people thought, oh, those poor Baileys, well, tell you what, we'll buy them one and we'll drop it off. And so they'd come by and they'd have a gift for us, a TV set. (laughs) And my dad learned not to say we can't afford one, because then he had to say, I didn't really mean we couldn't afford it financially. I meant we can't afford what it will do to us. (laughs) Zeal. Zeal. Zeal for God. Throw out the internet. That's zeal. Live without the laptops and all these things. It can be done still. That's what the Rechabites are doing. They're not in the cities. They're not in the technology centers. They're not living that way. Phineas, zeal for God. He's part of a line that's zealous. The Levites are chosen for God because after the the incident, the tragedy of the golden calf, Moses called out and said, who among you are for God? And the Levites rise up. Then he says, okay, this is what you do if you're for God. You go out, gird on your swords, go out, and you put to death your own family, your own friends... You go and put people to death. And the Levites obeyed them. And they put to death their own friends, their own families. They didn't go to other people. They went to their own family. They had zeal. Phineas. Phineas, the son of the Levites, child of Levi, was, was there when God was judging Israel for its adultery dual adulteries. They were committing adultery with the Moabite women and they were committing spiritual adultery with their idols. The two were interlinked. They always are. And, and so God is dealing with them and he's putting people to death for this. And there's been a plague and, and assembly is gathered before God under Moses. And one of the sons of Israel brings a Moabite woman and just bold and brazen as you can possibly be goes with her right into the tent. And the whole people are suffering from this adultery. And they're standing before God, and they're being called to repent. And here comes the guy, and he just goes into the tent. Phineas goes with his spear and stabs it. And it's obvious what the people are doing, because he gets them both in one blow. And God, the plague is stopped. And God promises him that because he was zealous for him, he will never lack a son. Makes a covenant with him. And interestingly, Jonadab, the founder of this clan, lived during the time right after Ahab in the northern kingdom. And Ahab's son is king, and he's as evil as his dad. His name was Omri, and God says, I'm done with the family in the line of Ahab. And he rises, raises up Jehu to do in the entire line of Ahab. And this man, Jehu, goes and he kills Jezebel, the widow of Ahab, and he kills and he starts killing and he's riding in a chariot. And he rides fast, he rides fast. He's coming across the plains to a city and they're looking out and they're saying, who's that? And one of the people used to said, boy, he rides, he's driving fast in the chariot. It looks like, that looks like, it's got to be Jehu. He drives like Jehu. Jehu always drove fast. It's a reason to drive fast. <laughs> My grandfather used to say, this is zeal. My grandfather used to say of a fast driver, he drives like Jehu. <laughs> so he's put to death Omri. He's killed Jezebel. And he's going on his way to kill more of the family And he meets Jonadab, the son of Rechab, this father that they say, hey, our father told us to live like this, coming to meet him. Out comes Jonadab. Along goes Jehu. Jonadab is going to meet Jehu's son of, or uh, Jonadab is going to meet Jehu. And he greets him. Jehu meets, greets Jonadab and says, is your heart right as my heart is with your heart? In other words, are we one mind, one heart? And Jonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand. And Jehu pulls Jonadab up into his chariot. He took him up and he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. This man, Jonadab, was a partner with Jehu in wiping out the line of Ahab and the prophets of Baal. He was a man of holy zeal. One heart with Jehu, who said to him, See my zeal And Jonadab, was like him in his zeal for God. To raise a thousand generations for God, you must have a holy zeal. There must be something that exercises your mind and your heart so that you act for God against the sensible ways of the people around you. You are not a soft man. If you have zeal for God, you cannot be a soft man, beloved of all, with no one standing against you. If you're loved by all, Jesus says, you're not of me, you have no zeal. This doesn't mean you're unkind, it doesn't mean you're unloving, but you are not soft, soft men. Are not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a hard man. Jesus says, soft man. They live in their fancy clothes and in the king's palaces. You're not like them. Jonathan, John the Baptist was not a soft man. You are not a soft man. You can't be soft. You can't love softness. You can't love popularity. You can't love your fancy clothes. You can't love your nice house and your cars. You can't love the popularity of your children. You can't be soft. Where is the zeal for God in American Christianity? Where is the zeal? Where is the zeal to be holy? Where are the people who are willing, as we talked in Sunday school over the past summer, who are willing as so many great people in the past, to give up money, to give up sex, to give up all they have because they want God. We have zeal in so many unrighteous ways but not for god i once made the i don't know if it was a mistake it, it seems today is a mistake of saying to a, a, a young guy in our church that i wished that i saw something in twitter from him that wasn't about the cleveland indians he was more zealous for the cleveland indians than for god i said i said it laughing but i said you know, i'd really like to see something about god well he's not in our church anymore We're zealous for sports, for Ohio State or Michigan, but not for God, for Trump. For methods of educating our children. Zealous for sports, for, it's like Gideon's townsfolk. They would not stand up for God against Baal, but when Gideon went and struck down the altar to Baal, they were tremendously zealous for Baal. We'll stand for the American flag, but. The word of God, ah, but America. So, how do we evidence our zeal? And I end with three points. Where is zeal? Well, I, I need to say, that zeal in every one of these lives we see and and really it's a a, just a biblical truth zeal is in every one of these lives demonstrated by fighting if you are not willing to engage in conflict you don't have zeal when was the last battle you had for god where you were fighting for god when was the last time that you made an enemy because you stood for God. Where are you fighting for God? A guy named, um, I don't need his name. Was he's, he, I think he's a soft man. He's a pretty boy. And he's become very famous in the Christian world. Southern Baptist, he left the Southern Baptist Church. After being critical of their stances in a number of areas, he left an important position and said, I can't be there anymore. I don't believe in them. Um, part of the reason he left was that he had been advocating for uh, one, at least one good thing, for reforms in the area of sexual abuse, which, which praise God, they've started to enact. But he was also disliked in, because of his opposition to Donald Trump, his public advocacy against Donald Trump. He said when he left the denomination, I could have won the conflict that needed to be fought. But I realized I would have to have a conflict. And I didn't want to be the kind of person I would be on the other side of that. So I didn't fight because it would have had to be a conflict. And so I left rather than fight a conflict because I didn't want to be the person that I would be on the other side of it. and I, In my own mind, I see the picture of this man and his hair is always perfect and he's a very good looking guy and every hair is perfectly in place and I think, yeah, his hair would have been mussed up, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you go through conflict and, and your hair's not pretty, you know? But think if of any biblical or post Biblical written era, hero of the faith that didn't go through the conflict. Where would we be today if people said I didn't go into the conflict? I could have won, but I didn't go because I didn't like who I'd be on the other side of that. David saying, I could have beat Goliath, but you know, it would have been a fight. You must fight. You must fight your children. You must fight your family. Jesus is explicit in this. Unless you hate your family, unless you lose your life that includes your family, you won't get it. Do you fight your children? Do you fight your wife, wives? Do you fight your husbands? Do you fight for the glory of God? Second, fighting, fighting is essential to zeal. You must fight. Nathan preached on this earlier in the summer. You must fight second expectation John Adab says don't do this and he was such a man and his zeal was such and the power of his personality was such that 400 years later they're still doing it now I have many great examples of expectation being fulfilled I don't have the time to give them remember when Nathan started wrestling at Toledo Christian years ago in junior high. His coach was Mario. Mario made the junior hires, he was the coach of the junior high team, he made them work like dogs. They had to roll up the mats, they had to bring them out, they had to run, they had to do, they had to, the senior high kids looked at that and they they acted like Mario and the junior hires were crazy, right? And then the senior high coach quit and Mario's stable of guys was rising to the senior high age and so the school said well Mario I'd like you to be I'd like you to be the coach we'd like you to coach senior high. Well what happened when Mario became the coach of the senior high team with the first of his students now entering high school that he had coached? Well what happened was that about three-quarters of the existing senior high team that had not been coached by Mario quit. But these wrestlers, whom he demanded things of for years, rose and became a powerhouse. Went to state meets, won districts, won sectionals. And things happened because he expected things. Look. There's two types of expectation and the one is pointless and the other is priceless. And the pointless type is the type that makes you look good and makes your kids make money and that, and that really elevates you. Okay, and, I, and it's really selfish expectation. Because it pleases you. The second type of expectation is expectation that's designed to lead your children to God. And I'm not saying that by the second type of expectation, the priceless type, that you're always expecting the end result. You may not be. In other words, you don't say to your kids... I don't want you to commit adultery, and I don't want you engaging in sex with a woman without committing to her in marriage, and then sit back and say, All right, I've given the rule, now get there. It's, you know, many of you are giving that kind of exit. Keep the Ten Commandments, kids, but you are not asking your son when he comes home at night after a date. Did you put your hands on that girl? Okay, now that first expectation is thoroughly biblical. The second one is an extrapolation of it. You understand it leads to it, but it's not like the Bible says you can never touch a girl, right? But what you're doing by voicing the expectation that you don't touch that girl until the two of you have talked about marriage, is a subsidiary expectation to the chief one. And so I think many of us think, well, we're, we're saying, you serve God, you serve God, you serve God, and that we're setting good expectations. But what you are failing to do, and what we so often fail to do, is to set the subsidiary ones, to say, on the way to serving God, I expect this and this and this and this out of you and these things are going to help you serve God you have expectations and they're not about being valedictory and they're not about being making lots of money unless you can make those clearly point to God which I don't think you can but they are about character and godliness and there's a zeal for God behind them finally I want to say so there's a fight. Zeal leads to fighting. Zeal leads to expectation. We see this so clearly in John and Dad. But the final thing that's part of zeal is fear. The church I grew up in, I, I said it Friday night. I honestly, of the 100 kids who were in the youth group when I was in high school, I think you could count on two hands, maybe on one hand, the number who are following the Lord today. And you know that church is still a, a big, prosperous, you know, well-oiled locomotive of a church. Zoom, 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 zoom down the tracks. But its children have fallen off the train as it zoom, zoom, zooms down the tracks, you know. They don't say they've fallen off the train. They say, well, you know, he's got a family, he's making money, he has a good job, he's this and that. And you can look at it and say, all right, if if your zeal is for the American dream, ah, they did really well. But we aren't fighting for the American dream, we're fighting for heaven. And if you don't call your children to God in this way, it's not that they're not going to make money and that they're not going to be popular. It's that God is going to reject them and say, you, I don't know. And they will be cast out of the presence of God rather than coming and standing before him for a thousand generations. Does that scare you? The thought that God could say to your children, away from me, away from me. I want to close by saying this fear should be in all our hearts, the fear of God's wrath. Perhaps you're just coming under that fear now yourself and you want to make a covenant with God that will last for a thousand generations. If this is your desire, God is the God who is willing to take you by the hand and establish that covenant. Pray to Him, ask Him to work in your line, ask Him to give you the faith in Him, it's required. To be this kind of father this kind of mother this kind of discipler this kind of teacher let us pray heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for the generations that we have been privileged to have in our midst as a church and we ask father that every line here will be established to a thousand generations we pray it in jesus name amen